Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today, we're going to talk about Pfizer's COVID vaccine getting full approval by the FDA and Republican shameless stunt in response to that, and the fight brewing among Democrats for September as far as the $1 trillion infrastructure bill and the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill are concerned. I interview California Governor Gavin Newsom about the recall election and what's at stake if a Republican were to win the race. And finally, Pod Save America and Pod Save the World co-host Tommy Vitor joins to discuss Afghanistan and the media's coverage of it and the significance of Tucker Carlson's recent visit with Hungary's Viktor Orban. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. Some welcome news for a change. The Pfizer vaccine was given full approval by the FDA, which means it could hopefully boost public confidence in the vaccine and also give way to vaccine mandates. And we're seeing that almost immediately. The U.S. military, for one, is going to begin mandating the COVID vaccine. An avalanche of colleges and universities. Uh, We've got the entire University of California system. Quinnipiac, Yale, UDell, Georgetown, Howard, Emory, Northwestern, Chicago, Notre Dame, LSU, Tulane, Amherst, Emerson, Harvard, MIT. I mean, literally hundreds of colleges and universities. A number of schools already mandated vaccines, and this approval will just solidify the already firm legal ground that they're on as far as vaccine mandates are concerned. Public schools across the U.S., with California becoming the first state in the nation to require all teachers and staff in K-12 public and private schools to either get vaccinated or undergo weekly testing. And so, especially where local and state governments have failed to take the necessary steps to protect people, it is promising to see schools and businesses and other agencies take these common sense steps to help get this pandemic under control. And, of course, this must also mean that all those Republicans who use the lack of full approval as an excuse to continue pushing back against the vaccine are clearly going to change their tunes, right? FDA just giving full approval to Pfizer's COVID vaccine. It's the first vaccine to get that full approval and in record time, too. That has critics asking if the process was rushed. Ah, well, apparently not. Because now, instead of the vaccine process being too slow, just like that, we've pivoted to the vaccine process being too fast. And look, I'm not going to waste my time or yours humoring these people in their whiplashy takes on the FDA approval process. But I will say this. This is all the proof you need that their complaints were never being made in good faith. It was never about the vaccine. It was about perpetuating the same culture war that landed us in such a dire position in the first place. And it's not even because they actually believe what they're saying about the vaccine. Like, let's be real here. All of these people have gotten it themselves. Rupert Murdoch got it in December of 2020, five minutes after it was available. They say these things because they're too afraid of their base not to. It's the tail wagging the dog. Right-wing media and Republican officials are now controlled by this lunatic faction of their base because those people are loud. And so now the people effectively running the GOP are the same people who think that vaccines are some communist plot for the government to track your movements or who think that masks mean you're inhaling lethal levels of carbon dioxide or that getting the shot means you get magnetized. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but when you have doctors and nurses and the people who actually went to medical school saying one thing, And then the Looney Tunes showing up to school board meetings because they did their own research saying the opposite and right wing media siding with those people. Then, yeah, that's who's leading the show on the right. The fact is that this should be an absolute no brainer. Again, FDA approval or not, 0.004% of those being hospitalized are vaccinated. That's it. And 0.001% of those dying from COVID right now are vaccinated. That right there should be the first, second and third thing that we're looking at. That's all you need. Those numbers don't lie. These right-wing pundits do, but the numbers don't. So look, if you're listening to this podcast, there is a very, very good chance that you've already been vaccinated. But there's also a good chance that someone in your family, someone you love, isn't. Just this week, I was able to help convince one of my family members to get it. And if you think that because of what I do for a living that my entire family takes my advice as gospel, then you do not know Jewish women. (laughs) All of that's to say, it's not too late and people are still open to it. So do your part and reach out to someone because it could be the difference between a trip to the ICU or not. 
Next up, I want to talk about the intra-party feud happening within the Democratic Party over the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill. Now, a group of nine moderates led by Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey decided that they wanted an immediate vote on the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. Of course, progressives and Democratic leadership had always intended for the infrastructure bill and the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, which would include the rest of Biden's agenda, the so-called soft infrastructure priorities, to move forward in tandem. This way, we could be sure that one wouldn't pass without the other and the entirety of the agenda would get enacted, as opposed to voting for the infrastructure bill passing and then all of a sudden moderates balk when it comes time to pass the reconciliation bill. Also complicating things is that while the bipartisan infrastructure bill is done and ready to vote on, the reconciliation bill hasn't even been written yet. And if you think the struggle to get that hard infrastructure bill passed was a lot, just imagine how much harder it'll be to hammer out a bill three and a half times the size. But now, this faction of conservative Democrats wanted to vote on the first bill immediately and threatened not to vote for the reconciliation package if they don't get their way. And with only a few votes margin in the House, we can't afford to lose nine Democrats and expect anything to pass. So what ultimately happened was that Pelosi and those moderates settled on the date of September 27th to consider the bipartisan infrastructure package. And yet, because progressives likely won't touch the bipartisan bill without the reconciliation bill also ready to go, that means the clock's now ticking to get the reconciliation bill going. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure what these moderates were trying to accomplish here. Like, to show that they have the power to sink the Democratic Party's entire legislative agenda? Great. Yeah, there is a three-vote margin. Any three people have that power. It doesn't make you special. It makes you a massive pain in the ass. And beyond that, all of this is to pass the infrastructure bill, what, a month or two before the reconciliation bill? That's what the rush is for? They can't wait a few weeks so that these two bills can move in tandem? Unless, of course, their intention is to sink the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package, in which case they're in for a rude awakening if this random group thinks they're going to, like, outsmart Pelosi. Because, you know, say what you will about her, whether you like her or not, there is no one more effective on the left than Pelosi. You don't have a caucus that spans from AOC to Josh Gottheimer and hold them together with zero defections if you don't know what you're doing. So if she says these two bills are going to pass together, I would bet you my last dollar that that's what's going to happen. I do want to make one more point here, and that's that there may actually be a silver lining to this timeline, which is that, you know, things are clearly going to move faster for the reconciliation package than we'd thought. And that is that we can pass these bills as soon as possible so that, A, we can celebrate what will be the biggest, most transformative legislative achievement since the New Deal, and B, we can move on to voting rights, which is next on the docket in Congress. And if you've listened to this podcast before, you know there is nothing more important right now than ensuring that we pass the Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act. How we do that, I don't know yet. But what I do know is that focusing all of our energy on that issue will only increase the pressure to ensure it gets done. What's certain, though, is that failure isn't an option here. Next up is my interview with California Governor Gavin Newsom. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Today we have the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. Thanks so much for coming on. It's great to be with you. So I want to start with this because I think it's the most important question right now. What is at stake with this recall election? What would it mean if a Republican governor took over? I think it's pretty profound. I, I think particularly on the issue that defines so many other issues right now, and that's our need to focus on this Delta variant and the mutation and the challenges associated with getting our kids safely back into school and continuing our economic recovery. And that's around masking and vaccine verifications. And I think on just those two issues, uh, I hope people realize the consequential nature uh, of who's sitting in the proverbial, what we call horseshoe, 
in the governor's office, the ability with simple signature, pen to paper, an executive order to overturn the mask mandates in the public schools, to overturn the healthcare worker vaccine mandates. It will have profound consequences to the health, and I would argue the economy of the state. And that's a pledge from the leading candidates on the other side. It is not hyperbole to suggest uh, that the consequences uh, of a yes, not a no on this recall uh, can be profound and pronounced uh, on the issue that defines, again, so much of our consciousness as a nation, not just as a state. Well, you know, healthcare implications aside, what about the the political implications, you know, beyond uh, just this pandemic in and of itself? Well, I mean, if you're Kevin McCarthy, you'd be celebrating it, probably be there sitting there swearing in of the next governor uh, and the impact and momentum that would have in the 2022 uh, midterms. I mean, if you're Chuck Schumer, I mean, just think about who Kamala Harris would have been replaced with if Larry Elder were governor of California, it wouldn't have been Alex yeah. Padilla. Wouldn't be a 50-50 Senate. If you're Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, look at the entire uh, Biden-Harris agenda. Just consider the three and a half trillion dollar package everybody's debating right now, particularly over the course of the last 24 hours. What are the top lines in there? It's around the care economy. It's around childcare. It's around preschool for all, free community college. Check, check, check. California's done all those things. In many ways, it replicates the California agenda. That quite literally is on the ballot September 14th as well. I think it'd have tectonic, I mean this, tectonic implications. We're so focused and I get it uh, on the mayor's race and whether what does that mean in terms of defund police and so focused on Georgia and the next iteration of the Georgia race, uh, Herschel Walker, who's up or down as it relates to gubernatorial aspirants. But California is the fifth largest economy in the world, a big blue state where Nancy Pelosi lives, where Kamala Harris uh, lived before she became vice president, where Kevin McCarthy lived. And you consider all of that, I think the national implications are pretty profound. Now, in your experience, what's been the one thing that's made people recognize the most how important it is to keep California in Democratic hands? Maybe something that they didn't, that they didn't recognize prior to this election, you know, progressing forward. I mean, I, I think honestly, what's been sharpened, the edges of focus have been sharpened in the last five or six months with this Delta variant. I mean, I think you see quite very, I mean, quite vividly the consequential nature of these decisions when you compare and contrast large states. It's hard to compare every state. California is the size of 21 states population combined. I mean, it's just a whole nother thing. That said, the states that often we get compared with, states like Florida and Texas, just look at their policies on this pandemic. And look at what's happening out there. I mean, when you have water systems saying, don't use water so we can save oxygen, so we have a capacity in our hospitals and ICUs to address this new COVID surge. Look at the positivity rate in those states. Uh, look at the hospitalizations in the ICUs in those states. Look at their mask mandates. Look what the governor's doing uh, to overrun those local decision makers and decisions that can be made by health professionals for, with respect, a lot of political reasons. I'm being generous by saying with respect for a lot of political considerations. Yeah. Pretty obvious what those are for those folks. I think the consequences in that respect are pronounced, but also on the issue of climate. I mean, think about this. The smash mouth realities of climate change are here. If you don't believe in science, believe your own eyes. Uh, not just with wildfires, but these heat domes, record-breaking July in terms of temperature, record-breaking drought conditions in the entire West Coast of the United States. Just think about these folks on the other side of this recall, the leading candidate who thinks it's a myth, a hoax, a crock yeah. to be exact, climate change. It wants more offshore oil drilling. I, I, and I know people say, well, you got a Democratic legislature, not all that can be advanced, but, but a lot of damage can be done with the line item veto the judges you can appoint as governor, the fact you can file amicus briefs. Just think about choice. This is an issue we're not talking enough about in this country. It's 25, six, don't quote me, states, governors that are leading the charge to deny women's reproductive freedoms and rights with the U.S. Supreme Court. You can have a 27th, the state of California's governor join an amicus brief because he doesn't believe in women's rights to choose. So this is, this is consequential it is existential from my humble perspective as a Democrat that loves this state and so much of the progress we've made. And really, at the end of the day, uh, I hope people really take to heart uh, the importance of at least turning in their ballot 
uh, we make it as easy as possible. It's not even showing up to the ballot box. It's right. turning in your ballot, which is an all mail-in now. And, you know, just building on that, of course, we all wish her the best of health. But the fact remains, too, that we have an 88-year-old senator from California. Can you speak on that? Yeah, look, one of my oldest, I, like, I got into politics. I'm a San Francisco native. My kids, fifth generation San Franciscans. You, you don't grow up in San Francisco, former supervisor, former mayor, uh, Diane Feinstein. So much of the history, Harvey Milk and assassination of our old family friend, George Moscone. His kids are still very close to me and my family today. So much of our history uh, is wrapped up in, in that history. That is Diane Feinstein, now Senator Feinstein. But you're absolutely right in, in, in terms of the consequential nature. If she decides, for example, to step down, uh, and that is an appointee uh, of the next governor of California or the current governor of California. And again, the, the national implications are overwhelming. And, and, and I know there's, again, this sort of false sense, well, it's California, big blue state. Why, do, why are you worried about it? I had some friends, I'm not making this up, Literally, it was a couple months ago. Said I was. It was a Sunday, and it was an extended family member. Said, "Why aren't you at the birthday party with everyone?" I said, "Because I'm campaigning down south." And they said, "What are you worried about?" I said, "What am I worried about? Democrats, including family members, are not even focused on this. Republicans, they're all focused on it. And that gap, that I don't even call it enthusiasm gap. It's really an awareness gap of the consequences. We've got to close that between now and September 14th. Yeah. Now, we spend a lot of time focusing on how bad the Republican Party would be for California, and and rightfully so, I think, because that party has proven just how dangerous it is. But I still think it's important to give people something to vote for. So why should people vote for you? Well, I'm really proud of this state. Not only do we have better health outcomes in the United States as a whole through this pandemic, uh, as well as better outcomes in states like Indiana, Florida, and Texas in terms of health outcomes related, but we have better economic outcomes. California's economy over the last five years, this is something the GOP loves to celebrate, and that's GDP. And over the last five years, California's growth rate is faster than any Western democracy on the planet. We've outperformed the United States. We've outperformed the UK, Germany, and Japan. We've significantly outperformed places like Texas and Florida. We're the tentpole of the American economy as we speak. Almost 700,000 jobs have come out of the state of California in the last six months. 100 plus IPOs were leading the nation in household income growth. We're seeing tremendous investment here, unprecedented investment in innovation, venture capital, record-breaking last year. We have the fastest growing state over the last five years in factory jobs. 13% GDP growth in just factory jobs, number one in two-way trade. I mean, this state's innovation entrepreneurialism is alive and well. And I know there's some anxiety around a few companies leaving, but there's hundreds of companies that are startups that are breaking through, changing the world that we know. And I'm also proud of the fact where America's coming attraction, the most diverse state in the world's most diverse democracy. And we expanded healthcare, we expanded childcare, we've expanded uh, policies that have been exported all across the country. And this state's led in terms of low carbon green growth and the work we're doing to detoxify our air and water. The present United States, had a big press conference just a few, seems like a year ago, but it was just a few weeks ago with the automobile manufacturers. That wasn't possible without the deal we made with the five largest automobile companies led by Ford a year ago as we pushed back against Trump in his efforts to uh, curtail our emission standards. That's one of the most significant environmental achievements in the last decade that the president advanced, but it wouldn't happen without California. So I go across the spectrum, healthcare, social justice, economic justice, racial justice. We're shutting down two prisons. We ended the death penalty in the state of California. We're leading the nation in terms of transforming our public education system. Brand new grade we created, TK for all, 200,000 new childcare slots this year. We're doing college savings accounts, $2 billion. Every child that enters into kindergarten is going to own savings account. First state in American history to do it. We tripled our earned income tax credit, $12 billion tax rebate that we're giving out quite literally in the next couple of weeks, 12 billion, the highest reserves in state's history. More engineers, scientists, more researchers, more Nobel laureates in the state than any other state in America, the finest university system, free community college, did that two years ago. Really proud of this state. There's so much to look forward to. And we got to address the issue of homelessness. That's my top priority, $12 billion investment 
into mental health housing uh, and in converting hotels and motels. I've been out there cleaning up encampments myself. I see what you see. The affordability crisis in the state, unprecedented commitment and plan on housing affordability. And we're just getting started. It's been two and a half years. I mean, I know it feels like two decades. I've been going, it's only two and a half years. And this last 18 months has been consequential, but we're just getting going. And so I really feel confident and incredibly proud of the resiliency of the state, but I know the recovery is uneven and I know we're struggling um, uh, to do everything in our power to help communities that have been ravaged by this pandemic. And, and that's the responsibility I, I, you know, as governor, I feel deeply. And, uh, and I want folks to know, I see and, and hear people and I want them to know uh, that uh, we have work to do, but I have your back. You touched upon this with, you know, figuring out the homeless situation, but what are your priorities, at least for the next year? Oh, my, we're hitting the ground running. We, we just put out this $12 billion plan, three, $3 billion plan just for conservatorship housing for mental health, uh, for Laura's Law placements. An actual strategy, $5.8 billion for something called HomeKey. It's now a national model. We were able to get 6,000 new homeless housing, unprecedented American history. We were able to do that in five and a half months with $846 million last year. Think about what we can do with $6 billion in the next year. Actual strategies, actual plans, an encampment plan, first in state history. Strategy to clean up the streets, a billion dollars called Clean California. That's why I'm out there. You'll see me out there, trust me. It, does, it hasn't even been a campaign thing. It's like, I'm just going back to my mayoral roots, clean up the damn streets. And we're doing that at a scale in the state. The healthcare work, I mean, no other state's doing what we're doing on healthcare expanding, including regardless of your pre-existing conditions, Billy Pay, and your immigration status. And don't think for a second, that's not why this recall's on the ballot. Remember the guy behind this recall, the guy who's in the voting pamphlet, the CEO of this recall, said he was inspired, the sixth recall effort since I started, was inspired because I stood up against Trump in the deportation policy. He was inspired because he was offended that we expanded healthcare to undocumented children zero to 26, or at least 19 to 26 year olds. I was proud of that. And we just doubled down by doing it for 50 year olds and older, and also giving them long-term care. There are 2.2 million undocumented residents in the state. 68% have been here for over 10 years. These are the folks that had our backs during this pandemic. They give $3 billion a year in taxes. And I'm just sick of these people demagoguing the Latino community, demagoguing and looking down and talking down to our diverse communities. I mean, this is a very consequential race. And this guy, Healy, who is that CEO, wants to microchip 27% of Californians because he wants to microchip all immigrants. 27% of this state is foreign born. And he says he wants to microchip immigrants because it works for animal control. I mean, this is serious stuff. Trumpism is still alive and well in this country. We defeated Trump, but we haven't defeated Trumpism. And I want folks to know that's what's really behind this recall. And that's why we have to reject it and vote no. Now, your campaign's been saying to vote no for the first question and to leave the second question blank. But hypothetically speaking, in the event that the recall were to go forward, wouldn't leaving that second question blank basically forfeit the selection of governor to just the most far-right Republicans, you know, who would vote for someone like Larry Elder, for example? I don't know what other brand there is except far-right. Every single one of these Republicans voted for Trump. Every single one of these Republicans wants to eliminate the mask mandate and verification on vaccine. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, by definition. So, you know, you I mean, Larry Elder, of course, he's a guy who wants to also eliminate the corporate tax eliminate the minimum wage. He wants to eliminate Social Security by privatizing. He wants to increase offshore oil drilling. Uh, he doesn't believe uh, in the FDA, wants to eliminate federal funding uh, for housing and education, doesn't believe women are as smart as men. He actually wrote an op-ed on that. Doesn't believe women have the right to choose. I mean, this guy's to the right of Trump. He wants to cut Medicare, wants to cut Medicaid, doesn't believe in Obamacare. Let the market decide. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, in addition to, obviously, climate change is, is, is a myth. So look, we've got to defeat this recall. It's a simple message. No and go. Go to the mailbox. Turn in. Don't even turn out on Election Day. Election Day is today. Every day between now it ends. Election Day ends on September 14th. But if we turn in the votes, the ballots, we don't have to ever worry about that second question. We don't have to ever worry about Larry Elder getting sworn in with Donald Trump uh, zooming in. 
uh, or Kevin McCarthy standing by him or sitting people like Newt Gingrich and Mike Huckabee, who's one of the most enthusiastic backers of this effort, or their Nunes or any of these guys. This is serious. They're coming. They're coming after our voting rights. This is all part of the big lie. I mean, this is a serious moment in American history. We're debating democracy. We have guys out there on one of those damn networks in Hungary with, you know, authoritarians. I mean, this is a serious moment. And I, I never thought I'd be this intense about this because I thought, all right, well, this shall pass. I, I'm married in a Republican family. I, it's not about my distaste or disdain for people to disagree with, but there's something that's happened to the Republican Party. And they're captured by this extremism that is totally present in this recall campaign. And I hope people really, really do pay attention to what's at stake. And next year, we'll have a normal election. Next year, we can debate the merits and demerits of our approach on homelessness and housing and compare and contrast with all the other candidates. But right now, we've got to stop this, uh, I think, profound train wreck by voting no on this recall. Now, the last year has shown, you know, just how important the position of governor is, you know, as we navigate our way through this pandemic, for example. And you spoke about this before when you were when you were talking earlier about uh, Texas and Florida. But with those states in particular, you know, how would you compare your performance to that of people like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott as far as, you know, the, these last uh, few weeks have been concerned? I mean, I, facts speak for themselves. You know, yesterday we had a 5.2% positivity rate, Florida, and uh, and in Texas, I think Texas was north of 20%. Their record breaking hospitalizations. They were bringing in, you saw the national headlines, they were bringing in mobile morgue units down to Texas. They were helping with ventilators uh, in Florida. I mean, look at, we had an $80 billion operating surplus this year. I mean, they don't even know what, they. They don't even understand that in Florida and Texas. $80 billion operating surplus, record reserves. You've seen the economic growth. You've seen the energy, the vibrancy that's starting to return. Again, not equally, and we've got to own that. It's growth and inclusion. But the fact that we have a strategy of equity and inclusion, that's part of our DNA, is something that makes me proud of California and this state. So we have better health outcomes throughout this pandemic, better economic outcomes. And our policies lead the nation. They lead the world. Future happens here first, across the spectrum. Think of social justice, racial justice, economic justice. Look at where the policy emanates. Look where it comes from. It comes from the great state of California. And so I, I don't, with respect, I, I don't even like being in the same breath as their approach to policy making. And finally, just this, we're open argument, interest and evidence. I'm not an ideologue. And, and there's humility here, man. I, this has been hard this last year and a half. And I have great respect for governors of all political stripes. None of us were given a playbook on this. Yeah. And it's one thing to go back to clips in 1918, 1919. And, and all of us were iterating. And were, everybody's doing our best. And, and I'm not here to take cheap shots. But I'm here to try to, I am here to try to save lives and, and to deny the efficacy of wearing a face covering when every emergency room doctor has been doing it for decades offends me to deny the efficacy of vaccines when, you know, I think the first vaccine mandate came from our founding father, George Washington. Yeah. And they had no problem with all those mandates that they were requiring and thrusting on our kids to get into schools. All of a sudden, this vaccine right. is offensive. I mean, this is pure political hogwash. It's yeah. pure ideology and a party that's been taken over increasingly by conspiracy theorists and, and extremists. I mean, I, I don't know what happened. I mean, I'm, I sit every day in Ronald Reagan's old desk and old office. I don't know what happened to the good old days. I mean, Reagan's starting to look like the good old days to me, even though we're yeah. reinvesting in the cuts he made on mental health half century ago. And finally, you're making historic investments this year to make up for that. And, and what's especially ironic about, you know, these the, the health outcomes that we're seeing is like in places like Florida and Texas, we're seeing worst health outcomes now with a vaccine free and readily available than we did even before there was a vaccine that even existed. And, and that's just a testament to like the the leader, well, the lack thereof in terms of leadership that we're seeing out of these certain states where, you know, they focus more on culture war issues and, you know, getting their cable news hits. I mean, critical race. Right? I mean, it's just, if it's not that, it's something else. These guys, right. you know, all this nonsense. And it's really nonsense. we got to blow back. Look, we stood tall against Trump and Trumpism. No state. We had over 100 lawsuits. We won them. We were firm. We had conviction. But a lot of headwinds in California last couple of years. 
I mean, we're dealing with record drought. We're dealing with record fires. Uh, we got social justice issues in the most diverse state uh, in America. But we're also, you know, we're, we're resilient. We're tough. We're gritty. And we're leading. And, uh, you know, including on vaccines. Uh, we're top 10 across the spectrum and eligible people getting vaccinated, adults getting vaccinated. Now it's over 80%, at least one dose. I'm really proud of that. Among the lowest positivity rates in the country, despite the Delta variant, because we're open argument, interested in evidence, science, uh, and iterative, right? I mean, something doesn't work, we'll own it. But you know what? We're not willing to take a backseat to lead. We led with the first stay-at-home order. That, you know, trust me, that wasn't popular back then. You know, people were angry, but it, but it allowed other states a little bit of room. New York, others started to move in that direction. I think that saved lives. We led as the first state to require all state workers to get vaccinated. First state to re require all healthcare workers, mandating them to get vaccinated. First state to require all, all school staff to do the same. That's all just in the last few weeks. So we're not backing off our responsibility to save lives and to lean in this pandemic uh, but again, you asked that compare and contrast. There are these red states that are just in a, a different planet as it, as it comes to the issue of this pandemic. And it's driven purely uh, by increasingly presidential and primary politics. Yeah. Now, I want to finish off with this. How have you held up during this time? Because every governor, like you had just mentioned, had to deal with COVID. Every governor had to iterate and figure out like what works best for his or her state. But, you know, for every other governor didn't have to deal with a recall election on top of that. So, you know, I can't imagine that this has been a walk in the park for you over these last uh, several months. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I, you know, I, what was I, I feel like that old line Bill Clinton said, no one cares about my yesterdays, they only care about their tomorrows. And, and that honestly is my response. You know, I, I get it. I mean, God, I get it. Politicians, right? We love to hate. And they're just things. They're not even human beings. Thank you for asking. Honestly, thanks for asking the question about as a human being, not just as a governor. Because I didn't, I wasn't born a governor. I was born a human <laughs> being, a single mom, was a teenage mom who raised me on her own just a couple of years later. We had a foster brother. Man, we grind. I mean, I, I was working Jeff Hicks construction. I was a janitor. I mean, look, you know, that's who I am. That's who I am. Uh, that's the essence. I'm a dad. I got four kids. Oldest is about to turn 12. And you know what? She's so excited for one thing, not, not for some new iPod, but to get vaccinated. Yeah, I got a five-year-old. That's the cutest damn thing in the world. And, you know, all he wants to do is get a crew cut. And I just love his long hair, man. I mean, that's, and you know, it's, yeah, it's hard. That part is the hardest part. Being a good dad and, you know, and showing up and, and being there and, and address, look, man, I get it. The homeless issues, the affordability. I get why people are frustrated. I get why people that supported me are frustrated. I get why, you know, we're at this point, um, not just with this recall, but in this country. It's been hard the last 18 months on all of us. And if you think it hasn't been hard on you, whoever you are, it has been in ways seen and unseen. And, and I just think we need to be there for each other. We need to get past the partisan recall and start focusing on how we can knit this state back together. Uh, I have 40 million people I'm responsible. I feel deep responsibility for. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. I don't care if you live in urban or rural parts of the state, man. We have your back. I care about you because you care about your family. You care about your community. We're, we're all in this damn thing together. But this partisan recall, you know, this is existential and we got to beat it back and we got to just raise awareness. Just 20 days to go. Well, well said. We'll, we'll leave it there. I've got, a, I've got my ballot right here that I just filled out. So I'll be uh, I'll be heading to the Dropbox in the next day or so, and and good luck. And you know we'll just make sure everybody votes no. I love it. I appreciate you, and I appreciate this opportunity. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Gavin Newsom. Now I'm joined by the co-host of Pod Save America and Pod Save the World, Tommy Vitor. Tommy, thanks for coming back on. It's great to be back. Good to see you. You too. So uh, let's start with the situation unfolding in Afghanistan. When Kabul fell to the Taliban, the media was practically tripping over itself to declare Biden's performance a failure. So do you think that was justified? I think that there were a lot of ways to avoid this outcome, and all of them are easy to identify and describe in hindsight. It's a lot harder in the moment. And so I think whenever you have a situation where you, know, you have uh, an organization like the Taliban that was literally an enemy five minutes ago, 
yeah going through the capital city where there's potentially 5,000, 10,000, we don't even know how many thousand Americans, where there's all these translators um, who worked with the US haven't gotten out yet. I think it's it's fair and appropriate to criticize that evacuation effort or the lack thereof in that moment. Um, I worry that that might obscure the broader need to end this war and the context, which is that you know continue, the US staying in Afghanistan for another year, two years, five years, would undoubtedly mean thousands more Afghan people dying, uh, the U.S. taking casualties, billions of dollars spent. And so I think that's a broader context that needs to be brought into these debates. Well, building on that, you know, a lot of the criticism here centers around the evacuation itself. And I know it's easy to criticize in hindsight, but is there something that Biden should or could have done differently that was to be expected? Yeah, and well, so, yes, good question. And, and I think the context is, President Trump negotiated a U.S. exit from Afghanistan in February of 2020. President Biden came in and, you know, essentially pushed the date of the withdrawal out, but kept the other terms. And I think what had to happen in that period between when President Trump negotiated the U.S. departure from Afghanistan and today is the U.S. government as a whole needed to drastically ramp up the processing of special immigrant visas. These are the visas for people in Afghanistan and Iraq who were interpreters for the US military and helped us, and the so-called P2 visas, other visas for people that worked with USAID or media organizations, et cetera. Now, the problem there is Donald Trump didn't want refugees. He didn't want immigrants. There's lots of reporting about how Stephen Miller would try to you know, basically squash those programs uh, or kill them with bureaucracy. And that was the challenge Biden faced. Uh, in fact, like the SIV visa program was created in 2008 and the, and the delays in processing those visas have been well known for years to the point where there was a lawsuit against the Trump administration. So I think the, the fair criticism of the Biden administration is to say, look, I know the intel community told you that we had six to 12 months before Kabul fell, but if there was any risk of there being significantly less time, you needed to figure out a way to either speed up visa processing or you need to push that departure date further out, maybe into the winter after the fighting season ends. Because in Afghanistan, there's literally something called the fighting season, which is basically when it's warm enough for people to move around the country and fight. Um, and maybe if the departure had been in, in February, um, then the Taliban wouldn't have been able to roll across the country. There's a lot more broader context about the way you know the, the US military trained the Afghan security forces over two decades. That's part of this, but these are sort of like the options in the in the reality that was laid at Biden's feet when he got there. Okay, going back to the media coverage for a moment, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're effectively seeing Biden shoulder all of the blame for this. And yet someone like George W. Bush is basically being absolved of any and all responsibility, even despite the fact that he got us into the situation in the first place. So what's your response to the fact that a good amount of the Afghanistan coverage is from Bush administration officials who themselves are complicit in getting us into this war and how their commentary is really driving the coverage here? I woke up this morning and I saw a tweet of an op-ed from Henry Kissinger uh, criticizing the uh, end of the Afghan war. And I almost threw my phone through a wall. Um, I, I think it's important to separate out the criticisms of the withdrawal over the last week and some of the chaos we've seen with a conversation about the broader war effort and the, the value of basically massive nation building efforts like we saw in Afghanistan or Vietnam. I think the lesson has to be that we never should have started a war like the war in Iraq, that we never should have tried to undertake this massive nation building uh, enterprise in, in Afghanistan. And I say that as someone who worked for Barack Obama, who sent tens of thousands more troops to Afghanistan in an effort to uh, do this counterinsurgency plan to do nation building. And in hindsight, I believe that was a mistake. I think that the 2009 and 2010 troop surge got us back to the status quo and that we never should have done it and that we should have shifted the mission in that moment to just a counterterrorism effort. Now, ultimately, we got bin Laden, you know, the, the, the U.S. government, the U.S. military, the CIA were able to degrade Al Qaeda in Afghanistan and Pakistan, which uh, that threat had grown significantly from essentially 2002 when the war started to, or 2001 when the war started until 2009. But this nation building effort, this massive troop buildup was a mistake. And we need to admit that and not ever do that again. Yeah, I mean, I think something missing in all of our endeavors is taking into account what the people of these countries actually want. Yes. Like we go in there to like 
bestow Western democracy onto the people of Afghanistan, but whether they even wanted that was never taken into account. Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the United States went to Afghanistan to like get bin Laden, to get Al Qaeda, and then very quickly this mission shifted under the Bush administration to nation building, where we tried to build them a modern military, uh, where we tried to build a modern government, where we helped them build a constitution. And, you know, ultimately, like you can't force these solutions onto a people into a place. It, it just didn't work. It didn't fit. And, you know, what what's hard, I think, for me about some of the discussion you're seeing right now is some of the same like Bush era critics that you mentioned earlier are saying, you know what, if the, if the U.S. had just kept a couple thousand troops, stayed for a few more years, things would have been fine. We would have kept the lid on. They never mentioned the fact that the Afghan security forces, the army and the police were taking thousands of casualties each year. Their casualties had drastically ramped up as ours ramped down. And the civilians were often living in hell. They were living in the midst of a civil war. And like that context matters, you know, the, the, the options were as what we're seeing now, life under the Taliban, or the option was life in a, in a permanent war. And I think both have downsides and we have to be honest about both of those downsides. Yeah. And, and, you know, ultimately, like, even, even if we were able to, to stave off the Taliban by keeping troops there for what, so then we can end up 25 years in and it still be a house of cards like it was 20 years in, you know, to, to fall immediately upon upon deciding to leave? There were some really foundational problems with the entire undertaking. One of them was the fact that the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan is pretty porous and the Taliban could just escape over the border and have a safe haven in Pakistan. And the U.S. government never found a way to solve that problem. The other was corruption and the fact that the Afghan government was not viewed as legitimate by a large subset of the population. They viewed them as people who were stealing from them. They were, they were not providing services. Uh, they did not feel secure uh, in, in a lot of places and villages because of the, the anti-Taliban efforts. And so you're right. Like you, uh, th There's something called the sunk cost fallacy that, that governments often uh, make, which is basically we put so much time and effort and money into this thing we can't stop now and then yeah. you end up putting more you know <laughs> spending time way and money more money than failed yeah. enterprise yeah yeah well in your opinion what will the legacy of this 20 year war be and will it be the narrative of a botched evacuation by biden what i hope the lesson is and the takeaway is is that the us military can do discrete things incredibly well they can find bad guys they can kill them they can take out terrorists. The Central Intelligence Agency, the NSA, the Intel folks can track them and, and find people like bin Laden or you know ISIS leaders. Um, the U.S. military cannot solve political problems. They cannot build a government. They cannot you know help uh, a, a build a Western-style military for a country where a lot of the people they're trying to recruit to the army or the police never had a high school education. You know, and, and what I think we need to come away understanding is we have to get past the the, the hubris uh, that came after 9-11. We have to get past uh, allowing ourselves to be constantly led by fear of terrorist organizations um, and just be a little more rational about the limits of American power and the actual risks that we face in the world. Because, listen, there may be Al-Qaeda or ISIS or other bad guys in, in uh, Afghanistan in the future. But if you look at what's killing Americans in America right now, it's COVID-19. And we need to do a hell of a lot more to prevent the next pandemic, in my opinion, than we do to uh, manage Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. I think we have the, the infrastructure and agencies in place to monitor and keep an eye on uh, terrorist threats in, in ways we did not have in 2001. So now Fox and Republicans, you know, are slamming Biden for not having been able to get people out. And yet at the same time, uh, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram are already warning about the impacts of having gotten these people out. You know, they called the impending arrival of Afghan refugees an invasion. How do you reconcile these right wing talking points where in the same breath, they're condemning the administration for both not being able to get these people out and then what will happen now that we are getting them out? Yeah, look, it's racist. It's incoherent and it's something we need to watch. I mean, I think th this is going to be the next big fight. You are going to see people like Tucker Carlson or Laura Ingram or J.D. Vance, uh, the asshole running for Senate in Ohio, who once criticized Donald Trump for being uh, an Islamophobe, for being anti-immigrant, and now is parroting his talking points because he thinks it'll help him win a primary in Ohio. This is the next big fight. 
And I think Democrats need to make the case that these are men and women who stood side by side with the United States in Afghanistan, interpreters who were on the battlefield with U.S. soldiers. These are people who bled for the United States, who gave far more than most of us back home did. And we should welcome them to the United States and we should help them build a life. And ultimately, their presence in this country will be good for America in the same way uh, that Vietnamese immigrants after the Vietnam War have built in entire communities uh, across America who have given back so much to this country. Um, and so this is something I think Democrats need to take head on and, and really fight for bringing people to the U.S. and, and helping them build a life. Yeah. And I think that, that what you said kind of goes more, lends itself more broadly to the idea of not shying away from these culture wars, but right. fighting them and winning them because so right. many of these culture war topics are winnable. They're, they're, they're topics that the vast majority of Americans actually agree with Democrats on. Yeah. And yet we shy away from them because God forbid we push back against something that Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity said on Fox primetime. 76% of Republicans in the CBS poll think that we should welcome Afghan interpreters to the U.S. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is this this is a winnable fight. We just cannot let them demagogue it. We cannot make uh, Republicans make this all about vetting or individual fears of terrorism. This is about values. This is about like our word. What's especially ironic about this too is almost the same day that they were fear-mongering about the possibility of Afghans coming here and being terrorists, even though these people were you know, on the battlefield with our troops for two decades, we had a right-wing domestic terrorist park his car in front of the U.S. Capitol and threaten to blow up two and a half city blocks. And that went away, you know, like a fart in the wind. Yeah. An actual terrorist. And yet it was, it was way more important to fearmonger that a brown person may be a terrorist at some point in the future, you know, as opposed to the fact that we had one sitting right here in his car uh, calling on Joe Biden to resign. It's a really important point. I think we've seen this over and over and over again in the United States, from from Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, to the January six, you know, terrorists at the Capitol, the right wing is is more than happy to defend, spin, explain away right wing terrorism as somehow about freedom or liberty yeah. or some made up nonsense, and they are thrilled to demagogue uh, threats from people who are brown or black or Muslim, yeah. and it is it is cynical and hypocritical, and we need to call them out on it. I think that's a good segue into Tucker Carlson specifically. Uh, a couple weeks ago, he went to Hungary to kind of go on this image rehab tour with Viktor Orban. What do we need to know about Viktor Orban to give some context to that visit? Sure. Uh, so a great quote about Viktor Orban came from Steve Bannon, uh, Trump's former Svengali, who once called Orban Trump before Trump. He is someone who believes in a, um, a brand of white Christian nationalism, he is incredibly hostile to immigrants. He is openly racist. He gave a speech in 2018, I believe, where he said, uh, we do not want to be diverse. We do not want our own color traditions and national culture to be mixed with those of others. He built a border fence in 2015 uh, during the big flow of refugees across Europe uh, in an effort to, to keep them out. And, and he has demagogued these issues to gain political control and to reshape the constitution, to take control of the media uh, and, and really undermine the electoral process in Hungary to really take it from a democracy to something closer to autocracy. So he is someone we should really worry about. Super weird. I can't imagine why Tucker Carlson would have any uh, vested interest in helping that guy. Can't, yeah, right. Can't, can't figure out the link there. I know. Yeah, same. And I, I, I don't know this for sure, but I think he probably got a big old paycheck to give a speech there as well. So, you know, good old Tucker. He's always in it for himself, too. So what is the benefit for both Victor and Tucker individually for working with each other? Because these aren't, you know, this you don't usually see the, U, the link between the U.S. and Hungary and what the benefit would be between, you know, propping up people in these two countries. It's a really good question. I mean, we have seen this sort of alliance of right-wing nationalist figures across different countries. Steve Bannon tried to create an institute, I believe somewhere in Italy, where he would bring all these people together, like, we really need that. And so I, I think for Tucker, you know, he wants to point to Orban and say, look, he built a border fence. He locked down on the media. He was anti-immigrant. Look how great it's turned out for him. I, I would argue that's not really the case. Uh, and then for, for Orban, I mean, Orban wants legitimacy in the United States. In the United States, Trump 
met with him in 2019 in the Oval Office. That was his first Oval Office visit since 1998, when he was viewed very different by the international community. Orban wants international legitimacy uh, and to be welcomed into the global community and not to be viewed as a pariah, which is what I think he should be viewed as. Yeah. And Tucker handed that right to him on a silver platter. On a silver platter. What does it say about the American right that Republicans are now carrying water for people like Viktor Orban, for these far-right nationalist figures? I think it shows that at the end of the day, they are willing to give up democracy uh, if it allows them to be you know, a white state, a white Christian ethnostate. I mean, th th that is the priority for them. It, it's keeping out brown people. It's keeping out Muslims. Uh, the, the parliament in Hungary passed a law banning gay people from being in high school educational materials or, or shows for kids under 18. I mean, they are thrilled to use bigotry as a political tool, even if it you know, makes a country undemocratic. And I think that's the kind of you know, effort we've seen since the, the election uh, and Trump's efforts to undermine it. And that's something we need to be very mindful of. Yeah, I do want to finish up with this. And this is this is a bit of a non sequitur, but I want to get your thoughts on it anyway. What do you think about the idea that independent redistricting commissions, which are largely found in blue states anyway, are basically acting as you know a means of unilateral disarmament right now by Democrats? Listen, I'm going to go ahead and just be a giant fucking hypocrite. Uh, I think that if Republicans are going to redistrict us out of all these seats, we need to fight fire with fire. And so I was really excited to see uh, the, the new governor of New York suggest that she might be willing to ditch some of these nonpartisan redistricting efforts and uh, implement a partisan gerrymander because we, we just can't allow uh, the House of Representatives to be taken away from the Democratic Party through redistricting and not push back. You know, I'm not will. I don't want to win a purity test. I, I want to win a political fight that ultimately gives people voting rights. I think that's what matters. And I think at the end of the day, all you have to say if Republicans push back against it is make it illegal, pass legislation banning partisan gerrymandering. The totally. ball is in your court. 100%. Yes, if, I am 100% in, in favor of nationwide nonpartisan redistricting. Let's do it. We just can't do it state by state where you have, you know, states like Ohio or, or North Carolina or Texas, where, you know, the Democratic Party has only a couple congressional seats, but won 49% of the vote or 45% of the vote. It's just not, it's not fair. It's not how a democracy should work. Right. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for, for coming back to talk. Uh, and again, for anybody listening, check out Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Tommy. Just one last reminder, if you live in California, your ballot should have already arrived in the mail. Do not assume that Democrats are assured victory. We're dealing with a complacent left and a really fired up right. So please make sure you fill out your ballot. Vote no on question one. And if you want to fill out question two, you can or you don't have to. But the important thing is no on the first question. Fill in the bubble, sign the envelope, date it, and you're done. I'm bringing mine to a Dropbox right down the street this week, and I hope you will too. Okay, that's it for this episode. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen, produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review, and check out briantylercohen.com for links to all of my other channels. Thank you.